0: Well, children, put your hand up if you have a dog at home. Oh, that's sad. Your parents should buy you a dog. That's a great idea. eh? (laughs) I'm going to get in trouble after this. Do you have a dog? Nice. Dogs are great. eh? Now, if you want a dog to sit, you know, so you can be like, sit, and it sits, what do you need to do, do you think? That's right. Nice. That's right. You've got to train them. Use some hand movements, maybe some treats too. Yeah, be like, yeah, a piece of chocolate. Apparently, they're not meant to eat chocolate, but it tastes really good, so just give them some chocolate anyway. Don't do that at home. Um, yes, you've got to train them. Now, what would happen, do you think, if you had a little puppy and you did it from the very beginning? Do you think it would be easy or harder to train them? True, but if you started from when they were little, would that make it easier, do you think? No. Hmm. What if you waited till they were a little bit older, maybe one year old? That'd probably be a good time to start, eh? And you start with their one because then you've got lots of time to start training them. Well, what about if you got a dog that was really, really old, like 16? In doggy years, that's really old, okay? 16 years old. And it had never learnt how to sit in its life. For example, my dog, I've got a greyhound. It doesn't actually know how to sit, not because I've never taught it, but because greyhounds are retarded and don't know how to sit down. Go figure. So what if you had a dog like that? Would that be easy to teach how to sit? No, that's right, because it's never learnt, has it? And it's kind of uh, a bit silly, doesn't think very well, a bit of spit spastic and all sorts of weird things. Well, you know, we're a little bit like the 16-year-old greyhound. We're not very good at learning how to walk with Jesus. In fact, by ourselves, we can never learn how to live for God. And in our passage today, we're going to be looking at how God brings salvation so that we can be trained, not how to sit, because I think, well, you guys are all sitting right now, so you're pretty good at that, but so we can be trained in how to walk in godliness because God loves and delights in making his people holy. And so he's busy working, and he does it by bringing his salvation to us. We're going to be thinking about how that works and why that's necessary and what it looks like in the sermon later on. But let's pray, and we'll ask God to help us to be trained. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that You are with us and that you do bring salvation and that you train us. And we do pray that we wouldn't be stubborn old dogs, that, Lord, that you would train us in godliness from the youngest to the oldest, that we might walk in newness of life and honor you. We pray for these children, that, Lord, you might grow them by your grace, that you might call them to yourself, that you would seal their baptisms upon them, that they might walk faithfully in keeping with all the promises you've made them. We ask that as a community, as a covenantal community, we would gather around them and bestow uh, love and grace upon them. We ask that you would watch over them as they listen and grow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For those who are visiting here today, we've been working our way through the little letter to Titus. And we find ourselves in Titus Chapter 2, we've just been sort of meandering very slowly through the book, and we're going to be looking today at verse 11 to 14. Uh, Two weeks ago, we looked at verse 11 and talked about the appearance of grace and sort of led us into Christmas. We talked about the fact that the appearance of grace is the appearance of Jesus Christ himself at Christmas, that Jesus himself is grace. It's not that we get a substance, but we get Christ himself. And today we're looking at verse 11 to 14, which dovetails after the section on teaching from verse 1 to 10. If you just look down there, teach some doctrine, we get teaching for older men, older women, younger women, younger men, uh, ministers, and then bond servants. And now we find ourselves in verse 11, which unpacks the theological foundation for godliness. And that's what we're looking at today. So this is Titus chapter 2, picking up verse 11, and this is God's word for you today. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, Let no one disregard you. Amen. May God bless his word to us. And before we consider it, let us come to him in a time of prayer. Father in heaven, we we thank you that you have given us your word. And as we draw near to you, we ask that like John on Patmos, we might see you and behold your glory by faith. That like Moses and the people of Israel who heard your voice from Sinai, We would hear your voice from the Lord Jesus Christ, not from a mountain, but through a preacher. We pray that you would give us understanding, that we might benefit from your word, for without the illumination of the Holy Spirit, unless you give us light, more light, we will never see nor understand, nor believe all that you have to say to the church. So, Lord, as one beggar points other beggars to the bread of life, would you feed us from your own hand? <clears throat> In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've been to the mall recently. You probably have. It's been Christmas, so you've probably had to go to the mall there's nothing like going to the mall at Christmas time isn't there? Not only is it busy but none of the children are in schools. So there's children everywhere and I love kids but you know you've all had that moment when you go into the mall and and you see a child who is clearly not disciplined whatsoever. You know the ones I'm thinking of, the ones who are running around like crazy people, ripping things off shelves, throwing them on the ground and And some parent somewhere is yelling out, Johnny, stop it! You know, you see the undisciplined, unruly children running around, and you think to yourself, mate, well, maybe it's just me, but mate, that child really needs some discipline. And then you carry on because it's not your child, and and you're gladly reminded of how much you love your children when you hop back in the car. Undisciplined children, they're, they're hard to watch, but what about undisciplined children of God? I mean, let's be honest, we can be pretty similar, can't we? We can be unruly children of God, or if we're not, we've seen them, right? Now, you have to appreciate the word, I'm I'm using the word discipline very intentionally, because the word that's translated as train is something of a mixture of training and disciplining. When you think disciplining, we tend to think giving someone a smack or putting someone in timeout, right? Discipline is far broader than that. It's far wider. You don't discipline your child just by getting them in trouble, right? You discipline your child by teaching them how to act, teaching them how to eat nicely, teaching them how to be respectful. Everything you do for your children falls under the category of discipline. And without that discipline... They don't know how to walk, right? They don't know how to live. And, and we've seen, I'm sure, and we've met dysfunctional adults. It doesn't take long when you've been fostering children to realize the effect of an undisciplined household. Well, as people of God, without discipline, without training, it's the same exact story. We need to be disciplined. We need to be trained. That's what we're thinking about today. What does it look like for God to train us, to disciple us? We, we finished last time we were in Titus with the words, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And we stopped there. And we were thinking primarily about the coming of Christ. But the sentence doesn't stop there, does it? You'll notice if you have a look at the text, there's no full stop, right? In fact, there's actually no comma either. It just kind of rolls straight the way through. It's a bit of a clunky sentence in Greek, but it just rolls through. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us. What does it mean for salvation to be training us? I mean, why is that necessary? Why is salvation and discipline connected together? Why is the appearance of God's grace bringing salvation attached to discipling, disciplining, training us to live as the people of God? Well, I want us to think about two things today. Firstly, we're going to look at the reason why. The necessity for salvation to bring training and not Logan to bring training. So not a person training you, but salvation training you not that we don't need people to train us. Why is it necessary? And then secondly, we're just going to look simply at that training that we see in the rest of the text. So why is it necessary for the bringing of salvation to train us? To understand that, you have to connect verse 12 and 11 with verse 14. Have a look at verse 14 with us, with me. So tonight we're going to be looking at verse 13, the appearance of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Now that phrase there is very important. To redeem us from all lawlessness. Why was it not enough for God to simply come down to earth and to train people to be better people? Because, I mean, that's what we do with foster kids. We get foster children, and the second they walk through the door, we begin training them how they ought to live. But God doesn't do that. God doesn't come and just begin discipling us or disciplining us. No, he comes with salvation. Why? It has everything to do with this word lawlessness. You see, by nature, we have a problem, don't we? by nature we are lawless what does lawless mean what well, sounds just like it means just what the word sounds like lawless no law living as those who have no law what what would a person look like if they lived as they had no law well they do whatever they want right there's, there's no shackles on me there's no one telling me what i have to do If I want to drive 500 kilometers an hour down the motorway, that's my decision because there's no law binding me. If I don't want to pay taxes, that's fine because there's no law telling me I have to. Lawlessness. But the problem is, yes, that we're lawless, but there's a far greater problem, and that is that even though we are lawless, we are under a law, aren't we? You see, when when God made the garden and when God put Adam and Eve in it, he gave them a law. And I'm not thinking of don't eat from the tree. What I'm talking about is the moral law that was written upon their hearts. The law had been written on their hearts as image bearers of God not to kill, not to commit adultery, to love the Lord their God with all their heart and to love their neighbor as themselves. That was written into the heart. That didn't need to be taught them. And because they were not lawless, because they were lawful, they would keep it. But they fell. And they became lawbreakers. They became lawless. But the law is still there, right? There's a reason why every culture you go to has certain things which everyone believes to be wrong. The, the bar might shift in different directions, but there's no culture you go to where you can go to your neighbour and say, by the way, I'm going to take your wife. There's no culture that says, well, actually, that's completely fine in my culture, go for it. There might be corrupted individuals who think that way. But the moral law is written on the heart. And when people say to you, and you hear this all the time, it's all subjective. I was talking to someone about this this week. It's all subjective, they say. The only reason you think it's wrong is because you believe it's wrong, and so it's wrong for you. And so what you need to say to a person like that is, okay, in that case, I'm going to come to your house tonight and take your TV. And they'll say, well, no, you can't do that. Well, why? Because it's my TV. You can't have it. Oh, so I can't steal your TV. And they'll say, no, because it's wrong for me. Yeah, but it's not wrong for me. Does that mean I can steal your TV? Now, see, there is moral absolutes that have been created by God and woven into the very heart of every created image bearer. This is why you feel offended when someone does something wrong to you. Now, why that's so important, is because what you begin to see is that whether a person has received the moral law, the Ten Commandments, whether they've received the word of God or not, the law of God is on them and over them and binding upon them. And they don't keep it. Which means what? They are under the wrath of God. They are under the judgment of God. But not only They don't keep it, but they cannot keep it, and they will not keep it. So you can go to the highlands of Papua New Guinea where there is no phone reception and find people with cell phones looking at pornography, no joke, and you can say to them, God says, you must not commit adultery. That is adultery. Stop it. And they won't. Because they cannot keep God's law. They are lawless. They live as though they have no law. This is what Paul is arguing for in Romans. When you read through Romans, he unpacks the fact that everyone's under sin in chapter 1, 2, and 3. Then he rolls you forward into Abraham. He shows the righteousness of God. Then he takes you into chapter six and he talks about you being dead in your sin. Then he brings you into chapter seven. And he says, there's a law that's at work in my members, in my body, that though I want to do the right thing, I do the wrong thing. And though I want to do the not do the wrong thing, I just do it anyway. Do you guys know that feeling? You're like, man, I really just want to stop doing that. And next second, you're like, whee, just jump right into it anyway. And you're like, what's the matter with me? I did it again. And you wake up in the morning and you say to yourself, well, today's a new day. Today, I'm not going to do it. And you do it anyway. That is the reality of a fallen nature. But outside of Christ, outside of Christ, the only option you have is to choose sin. So we, the way we talk about this is before the fall, Adam and Eve could choose to sin or not sin, right? They could either eat from the tree or not eat from the tree. After the fall, people could choose to sin or choose to sin. Once Christ comes, everything changes. And that's what we're getting to here now. You've got to understand the theology of the way this works in order to understand how you must live. So here are a people lawless under the weight of the law, under the judgment of God, without hope, as Ahana confessed, without hope save in the sovereign mercy of God alone. Totally incapable, totally depraved, totally broken. If you want to go to heaven, you must be perfect. That's the standard. Here's the law. Now, Do it, the law says. Do it and you shall live. But what does Paul say in verse 14? The Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Now that word redeem is so important. He doesn't say justify us. He doesn't say save us. He says, redeem us. Why? Because to redeem someone is to buy them, right? You just think about a coupon. You redeem a coupon, yeah? You take your coupon, you redeem it, you get a free Big Mac. Christ redeems us from our state of lawlessness. We're in bondage, right? We're in slavery. We're under the law. We're bound up. We have no hope. We can do nothing. And Christ redeems us. With what though? What does he pay? Well, Paul says himself, Peter says, with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, which is worth far more than silver or gold or precious gems. He doesn't buy you with a price on your head, he buys you with his own blood. He pours it out. Remember, this is the blood of the new covenant given for you, he says. Take it and drink ye all of it. This is the blood of Jesus Christ that redeems you from lawlessness. In other places, it's going to talk about redeeming us from other things. But here, because the focus is upon law and obedience and lawlessness, he focuses us down upon this law. And he says, the way you get out of the state of lawlessness and brokenness under the law, the way you get out from under the law so that you're under grace is by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you run into the objection that Paul puts in the mouth of his opponents in Romans. Do you remember this? Paul says, well, in that case, should we not sin that grace might abound more and more? Remember the argument? He unpacks free grace. He shows that the gospel is so scandalous that people will instantly assume, well, in that case, I can just do whatever I want because I'm saved by grace. This was the concern of the Catholics at the Reformation. Luther, if you preach this, people won't obey. People won't give to the church. We'll go bankrupt. How will we build St. Peter's? You can't preach this. If you preach the free, unadulterated gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you contribute nothing for your salvation, that there's no law keeping, there is no lawfulness, there is no obedience that contributes anything towards your salvation. If you preach that, People will not obey God. Paul says, "God forbid. By no means." Why? You've got to understand this this transition that takes place. So we're we're in lawlessness. We're under the weight of the law. Christ gives Himself. he pours out his blood. He purchases us out from the law, out from the law. And then we are yoked to Christ and we come under what the Bible would call the law of Christ. It's like we confessed last week in the Heidelberg Catechism. I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You are not redeemed for yourself. You know, when, when you purchase the Big Mac with a redemption coupon, the Big Mac doesn't get to do what it wants, does it? No, it gets eaten. It's in your, auth- your ownership, right? You are the lord of the burger, Jesus Christ purchases you, which means you're his. So though you are now no longer under the moral law in a sense in which you must keep it and obey it to live, you are now under the moral law as a servant and slave and owned person of Christ. But not as a lawless individual, brothers and sisters, not as someone who who has to keep the Lord to survive because that's what lawless people have to do. You're there as a lawful person, right? Because Christ has given you his obedience. So you've been set free to keep the law, to walk in the law, to love the law, to follow the Lord because Christ has cleansed you. Christ has purified for himself himself are people for his own possession. And what's the outcome? Have a look at verse 14. People who are zealous for good works. Now let me ask you a question. Would your pursuit of good works be described as zealous? That's a challenge, isn't it? Or would it be uh, my mediocre good works, my average attempts, my laziness? Because if we're, if we're honest, very often our zeal languishes, right? think back to days when we were strong and and bolstering and our faith was encouraged and we and we strove with zeal to follow the lord and people might have looked at us and said what just calm down man like you don't have to be that intense i remember this lady i ran into once in a church and i was like oh what are you doing your spare time and she goes i read the bible and I'm like, oh, yeah, cool, cool. So what else do you do? She's like, no, I just read the Bible. I'm like, yeah, but what do you do, you know, like in your spare time? She's like, I read the Bible. And I'm pretty thick, right? So I'm like, okay, I okay, get that. I, I get you love reading the Bible. That's great. We all do, which is probably an understatement for me. She's like, we all do, but what do you do outside of that? And she just looks at me with this face of confusion, and she just goes, I read the Bible. I'm like... Is that all you do? She goes, yes, I literally just come home from work and I just sit down and read my Bible because I just love reading my Bible. She had this zeal to just know the Lord. Her husband would be running here, there, and everywhere, doing all sorts of different things, and she'd just be gladly sitting there communing with God. Now, regardless of what you think of that, there was a zeal, right? And maybe you and I can think to times When not just like that, but we've been zealous for the things of the Lord. Zealous to draw near to the house of God for worship. Zealous to go to a Bible study or a prayer meeting. Zealous to meet with other believers. Zealous to lay down our, our gifts and our offerings and our praise. Zealous not to murder. Zealous to keep the law. Zealous to keep the Sabbath. Filled with zeal and then somewhere... Along the line, lethargy set them. I wonder if maybe today you're sitting in that place, or you're sitting in the the lukewarm pool, neither hot nor cold, and you're wondering what zeal looks like. We're going to think about the motivation for zeal tonight. But what does is, what is zealousy for good works look like? What are these good works that we're pursuing? Paul helps us understand this in verse 12. He says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, and you might insert here, In order that lawless ones become law keepers, become children of God, purified for himself as a people of possession, zealous for good works. Disciplining them, training us to say no. Training us to deny, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. You might think to yourself, you know, Logan, it it was a lot easier for Israel. You know, because, I mean, you just had this long list of rules, right? I mean, sure, there are a long list of rules, but at least you know what to do. You know, it's like, well, make sure I don't have my cloths mixed. Make sure I don't mix my different grains. Make sure I build a parapet around my roof. Make sure I don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. You know, just very normal things in life to do. Make sure we keep, and just, you know, just print out the list, stick them on your fridge, stick them on your toilet door, and easy, that'd be a lot simpler, right? Well, God just gives us, all the way through the New Testament, glorious teaching on how we are to live for him. One of the most repeated realities is something Paul does. He says it's a matter of putting off, and it's a matter of putting on right? We've seen this many times. We've seen it in Ephesians, we've seen it in Colossians, and here we see it in Titus. It's about saying no, and it's about saying yes. There are things you must deny, and there are things you must embrace. So what must we deny? What must we renounce? What must we say no to? You'll see three things there. Sorry, two things. Ungodliness, And worldly passions. What is ungodliness? Well, I mean, the obvious is it's the opposite of godliness, right? Ungodliness would be the first table of the law. The first table of the law. Remember? Worship God. Don't make idols. Don't blaspheme the Lord's name. Keep the Sabbath. That would be godliness. And ungodliness would be breaking the first table of the law in the mind of Paul, in the mind of every Jew, and in the mind of the Bible's teaching. The laws have never been done away with. They're the moral law that are written upon our heart, and they are still to be kept by the believers of God. This is why throughout the ages, the Presbyterian church has always taught the ongoing significance of the Ten Commandments and preached on it. If you want help on that, Just read the shorter catechism, or the longer catechism, on the Ten Commandments. It is excellent. And I do mean second to almost none. Ungodliness is giving yourself to something rather than God. At the end of the day, the first table of the law is summarized as idolatry. And if Calvin was right, which he almost always was, if Calvin was right that our hearts are like a perpetual idol factory, we have a serious issue, right? Because I don't know about you, but I can sing with truthfulness. My heart is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Because deep down in my flesh, I want to worship me and anything else except for God. Don't you feel that? The Lord says, you must say no. You must say no to these things. But there's a second thing we must say no to, it's worldly passions. This is the second half of the law, right? Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie, etc. You see, there's, there's two ways that we can give ourselves to worldly passions. We can give ourselves to wrong things, to unacceptable things, sinful things, the lusts of the flesh, or we can give ourselves to acceptable things in the wrong way. Consensual, marital consummation is good, right? It is honorary. It is a blessing from God. Doing it before you're married or outside of marriage is wrong. You take something good and use it in the wrong way. That's a worldly passion or giving yourself to things that are ungodly. You must say no. There is no room for someone that has been purchased by the precious blood of Christ to say, I will have adultery and God. There is no room for the believer to say, I will have tax evasion and God. I can't tell you the amount of times I've sat down with a person, not from this church, just in my life, that I've sat down with a person and they've said to me, it's not that much of a big deal. According to God, it's a very big deal. We say no, but then we say yes. We say no to ungodliness, the first table of the law. We say no to the second table of the law, worldly passions. But then we must say yes to three things. And you must think of these three things like a three-legged stool. What happens if you take a leg off a three-legged stool? It's not a great stool, is it? So you have to hold these together, but have a look with me. So we say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and we say yes to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Or you could translate it as sobriety, justice, and piety. Now, the reason I use those three words is that what we recognize here is we have three directions of obedience. Sobriety or self-control is towards the self. We must master ourselves So we say yes to self-mastery and obedience in following the law. Then secondly, we say yes to justice or uprightness, which is how we treat one another. So we control ourselves and we love our neighbor. And thirdly, we have piety or godly, which is our devotion to God. Now, this is why these three things come together, because if you do not control yourself, how will you ever love your neighbor? You're never going to, right? But if you don't love your neighbor, how are you ever going to control yourself? And if you don't love your neighbor and you say you love God, John says you're a liar. So, this is not a, well, I'm I'm just really good at self control. I'm not that great at the other two. And that's okay. You know, my gift is in loving my neighbor. Or, I just really love the Lord. And I love him so much that I'm going to ignore everybody else. There is no room for that. It is a three-legged stool that binds itself together beautifully so that as as I learn to control myself, I learn to love you because I'm not going to gossip about you. I'm not going to slander you. As I learn to love you, I'm going to grow in my devotion to God because I'm going to see him in you. And as I devote myself wholeheartedly to God, I will control myself because I love him, and I will devote myself to my neighbor. I will love my neighbor because of my devotion to God. It all self-perpetuates and self-feeds off itself. So we must say no to the things that would break the law, and we must say yes to the greatest commandment and the second which is like it. Why? Why? Because we're not lawless anymore. I mean, why why would we law break when we've been made lawful? This is why the church throughout the ages has always put, put a premium, put a premium on Christian morality. This is why church discipline exists. Because our goal, as the Apostle Paul would be it, would be to present the bride of Christ blameless and beautiful to her husband. That's what we're striving for in 2024. Not because we're going to come up with some cool new fancy slogan, but just because that's what the scriptures call us to. To walk humbly with our God. And to show justice and mercy to our neighbor. And to control ourselves as we do it. May God grant us to live as children of God, right? May he enable us for his majesty and glory to be a people of his own possession. To walk in righteousness and and loveliness and godliness that he might be praised, because at the end of the day, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who purchased us, the one who redeemed us, and is the one who calls us and equips us to live for him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge before you that at the end of a year, as we head into another one, that we long to grow more into Christ, to be the people of your choosing, to live as becomes the children of God. We ask that, Lord, as you have saved us and redeemed us from lawlessness, that you would also call us and equip us and empower us to live in a way that pleases you. We thank you that... We will never be welcomed because of what we've done, but because of the glory of Christ and all of his work. Help us never to forget. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.